Hey, welcome to Music Made Me, the TuneCore podcast. I'm Erin Frankenheimer, and I'm going to be your host on today's episode. Today we're talking about mailbox money, specifically passive money which comes to a musician or songwriter for work done in the past with a high level of frequency and a low level of management. This money doesn't just appear out of thin air. There's a lot of work to be done before getting to a place where mailbox money is finding its way to your bank account. So to speak more about that, we've got BMI's Pop Songwriter of the Year with us, Ross Golan. Ross is a multi-platinum songwriter, a playwright, and is the host and producer of And the Writer Is, a podcast that has been praised by Billboard magazine, the Los Angeles Times, and Forbes for its candid and intimate one-on-one interviews with songwriters about what really happens behind closed doors in the industry. Ross has written number one hits for some of the biggest names in music in recent years, like My House by Flo Rida, Same Old Love by Selena Gomez, Dangerous Woman by Ariana Grande, Marilyn Monroe by Nicki Minaj, Shame by Keith Urban, and Unkiss Me by Maroon 5, to name a few. Ross also, alongside celebrated songwriter Evan Bogart, successfully petitioned the Recording Academy to award songwriters at the Grammys in its Album of the Year Award. Welcome, Ross Golan. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Ah, you're welcome. Thank you. So we're talking about mailbox money, but before we do that, could you please start by giving us the background on your origin story, how you got to this level of success on the charts? Uh, well, that's really interesting because success on a chart is really fleeting. You know, I think people have the assumption that there's like a, there's kind of a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and you reach this journey, but the success really varies depending on that, you know, that week's chart position, you know, somebody who may have a number one song this week doesn't have a number one song next week. That's the whole joke of people aiming for, you know, only new music Friday is that every Friday is just new music. So you're, if you're aiming for that, your song is gone in a week. So it's kind of interesting because, uh, I, I always think of sort of where I'm at as a moving target. Um, but that said, I, uh, I grew up in Chicago and I moved to Los Angeles when I was 18 for school at USC. And uh, as an internship project, I started a record company of sorts and basically that's when there were still CDs and I would put a logo on the back of the CDs which meant that I was a record label um, and by the time I graduated and the summer after I recorded an album called Reagan Baby and got a, um, a record a couple offers a record a couple record deal offers and one was from the head of EMI Phil Corderero who offered to buy my record label um, and uh, I didn't have an attorney at the time so he said I got someone for you and his name is John Frankenheimer perhaps you know him I might know him. Uh, Full disclosure, it's your father. Um, And to be honest, like the up and down nature of being an artist in the music industry is fascinating. I mean, if you look at the biggest songwriters in in the business right now, um, Justin Tranner and uh, Jay Cash, Ricky Reed, Jason Evigan, Sean Douglas, uh, Joe London just going down the list, everyone was in a band. 
and everyone knew each other in this era of like trying to make it as an artist. One of which was Ryan Tedder, you know, and then One Republic worked. You know, it's like the other nine people at some point figured that it made more sense to focus mostly on being a writer other than being an artist. All of us still create art and still release music and find ways to be artists. But what's been fascinating is watching our generation learn about the business together and kind of go through the journey together of um, how to make money from selling air for a living. And the three weeks it takes for you to try to sell out that venue in whatever city you're in, whether it's LA, New York, or New Orleans, or anywhere, is often not really worth it. You know, it's, it's a, it becomes a vanity thing about how you want to perform in front of people or you just want to tour. But in a practical business decision, it's usually a waste of time, even if you sell the venue out, versus if you spent those three weeks writing songs, you potentially have 15 copyrights that you didn't have before. And uh, as Wendy Goldstein, who's the senior vice president at Republic, said to me once, she goes, I'm, I'm envious of you because you get to wake up every day and you get to create an asset. And people don't realize that, you know, if I write 100 songs in a year and one of them has value, you know, after a 10-year career, I could have 10 hits of sorts. And I promise you that that's worth a whole lot more than however many uh, you know, 300, 400, 2000 seat rooms you can perform in. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that's like kind of like a circuitous way of going about it. But I was in a band for a while and then I was in another band for a while, had a couple record deals, sold no records. Uh, I gave a place back to a bank and was like, I don't know what to do here. Either I, uh, start getting cuts or I go back and get my LSAT and become a lawyer also. And um, fortunately, I timed things up just right where the end of my previous, my, my last band and the beginning of getting cuts with CeeLo and Demi Lovato and Maroon 5 and all these things all happened at the same time. So I was able to make not exactly a seamless transition, but a transition into being a professional writer. And the last five years has been, uh, you know, I sold maybe, what, 10,000, 15,000 copies as an artist and probably about 30, 40 million songs so far as a writer. Wow. And um, it's, it's like vastly different. And when you said earlier you gave a place back to a, a bank that was foreclosing on your <laughs> condo. Yeah. And I talk about it a lot, um, partly as therapy and, and also because I think it's, I think it's important to realize that we, a lot of times you meet someone who's successful and the assumption is that they were always that successful or you meet someone who's broke and you always thought they were broke, but there are people who live on the street who came from a lot of money and there are people who have a lot of money who came from the street and you don't know where they're going to go in the future. And this is that when you say like, you know, how did I get where I'm at? And the where I'm at is such a moving target. And I think it's important to give a little background of how almost every entrepreneur you know has gone through uh, some sort of risk that they took. 
and they had to give up something in order to make this work. It was, it, it isn't easy for anybody. Um, and, and I think that that's just important to say, like, at, at one point, I had to, you know, the quote that I always use is I, that I had said, I'd rather sell my condo to live my dream than to sell my dream to live in my condo. And at some point, I had to make this decision of if they kick me out of this place, I don't know where I'm going to go. But fortunately, everyone was foreclosing because it was 2008 through 10, and they just didn't kick me out for 18 months. And during that, I wrote every day and basically am still reaping the benefits of giving everything to that, you know, which leads me into like the musical, which leads me into the podcast. I mean, all these, all of us met each other, all the co-writers I met during this era for the most part. And so we all kind of have genuine love for each other because we all realize how little we had at one point. And then, you know, that, that time I didn't, I didn't take that time for granted and I was able to write from a real place, which has, you know, it's given me a whole career that I'm still feeding off of because of the 18 months that the bank allowed me to stay there before they took it. Well, it's crazy. It is crazy. Um, and I, and I, and last thing I'll say about that is that I managed to time up my, uh, by the time, you know, they were starting to take my place and we started getting some offers from publishing companies and it was the timing it up to get the publishing company to do the deal right when I was getting rid of my place so I could afford the next apartment was a huge, like a huge win. So, you know, now it's like, a, it's many years ago, but amazing how that journey happened. Yeah, no joke. But so we're here today to talk about mailbox money, a passive income stream that doesn't usually show up overnight, as you've just demonstrated. Uh, let's start about how you get your music in front of the right people when you're starting your songwriting career. Is that a publisher, a record label, um, an artist? What do you see as the first step to securing a piece of work that could later yield return in royalties? Um, well, there are a couple things to that. You know, a lot of people will complain about their publisher not doing their job and getting them cuts. And my argument is usually that the songs aren't good enough because when the song's great, there's no shortage of people who want to cut it. But it's important that people realize like nobody wants to cut your song. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the biggest songwriter in the world. I don't care if you're Ed Sheeran. I don't care who you are as a writer for other people. Nobody wants to cut your song. Those Artists have been on the road for a long time. They want to hang out with their friends. They want to go drink. They want to go have their own life. They don't want to go to the studio, you know? So you have to write a song that's worthy of that artist wanting to spend their night or whatever to go into the studio and cut the song. And that, that means it, it, it seems like, it seems really obvious, but a lot of people think like, oh, well, you know, some of these songs I have, maybe they're not for me, but maybe they're for some other artists. You hear a lot of artists say that. That, unless you're one of the few, the Ed Sheerans of the world, nobody wants to cut your B-sides, you know? Um, if they were a hit, you should have kept it, is the gist of it. And if, you know, that that's that's the realness of, of a lot of these, like, um, the outside cuts happen because the songs are good enough. But to get... You know, the time to find an, a publisher is probably when a publisher finds you. 
You know, you can try to solicit and try to convince those people to listen to your music and maybe they have the ear to hear it. But if you start creating an abundance of good music, you know, none of these writers have one good song. They have a lot of good songs. And and publishers are willing to take the risk on the hundred good songs to maybe get the one real gem, you know? So if you're going in with one good song and ten really shitty songs, you're probably not going to get the publishing deal you want. You know, you want to have, you want to start creating uh, a better batting average of good quality material, and people will talk. I will find out about it if a writer is big enough or good enough. You know, someone will come to me, and if they're coming to me, they're coming to everybody because people talk. They, it, it's. Not not a lot of the writers who are working in L.A. are from L.A. Not a lot of the writers who are in New York are from New York. You know, they all started somewhere. They were all creating music, and they all created music that, as I, I tell my writers, I'm like, you want to create something remarkable, something worthy of remarking. You want to create something that people will talk about behind your back. Well, they say, like, when you're not there, they're like, you got to hear this song. This concept is sick. This melody is incredible. And, and if you do that correctly, people will talk and they will spread your music and it will get to the right publishers. It will get to the artists. But to think like, oh, man, I have this one song. This song would work right now. Then you're not writing timeless copyrights. You're writing something that's really, you know, disposable. And that's not really what most publishers want to look for. You know, they want to look for they're, they're trying to find that great copyright that can be used in you know commercials and in live you know in in arenas they want it so that way they can work on radio so they can be intimate at, at times but they want to make sure that they have you know they're looking for either hallelujah you know or they're looking for celebration or ymca like they're looking for big copyrights those are the things that keep the lights on one of the great things about like that, that's important for people to realize the value of publishing is Sony ATV, which is one of the major publishers. The Sony part has millions and millions and millions of songs. The ATV part has about 3,000 songs. That was Michael Jackson's publishing company that he owned um, the Beatles catalog except for Penny Lane. And also, I believe they had, you know, something like the Everly Brothers or something like that. You know, a few of these other ones. But out of the 3,000 songs that ATV had, that equals the value of the millions that are part of Sony. So it's called Sony ATV because Michael Jackson and the Beatles alone are worth the millions of songs that are part of Sony Publishing. So that's why, like, the value of that one copyright, if you write that one hit in your life, it's, you know, can change your whole, your whole family's history, you know? It can change the future of your estate. So is it more than, instead of getting in front of, you know, thinking that a publisher is going to be the thing or a record label, it's more about creating quality music constantly and in an environment where your community can support that and talk about it? Yeah, you know, we we just interviewed Ryan Tedder for the for the next season for and the writer is and and when I asked him what's advice he'd give to to a, an up and coming songwriter, and he said, move to L.A. 
You know, here's a guy who had been commuting from Colorado for years. And, you know, it's really hard to make a living in the pop world not living at the source. At any given time, right now, you know, I've, I've gotten however many emails from people saying like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm in town, you know, this artist in town, or I've got a session with this person or that person, like, do you want to come in? And if I were living anywhere outside of L.A., it'd be really hard for me to go, you know? So there is something about the proximity of being close to the source. As much as the Internet changes things and as much as that might be hard for some people to hear, most of the writers are in L.A. or close to L.A. for a reason, you know? There are few in New York, but New York's... Even being in New York is too far for most people. That's why the greatest writers that are in New York now live in L.A., you know? In country, they all live in Nashville. They don't live in Atlanta. They live in Nashville. They don't live in Memphis. They live in Nashville. If you do blues, you can live in Memphis. You can live in New Orleans. If you do hip hop, you should probably be in Atlanta, maybe in in Brooklyn, maybe in L.A., but you should probably be in Atlanta. If you're doing pop, you have to be in L.A., maybe Stockholm, maybe London. But, you know, the reality is that if you're close to these sources of, of you know, to the music you'll have a busier schedule and more people will hear your music. But I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in my studio right now and I still pick up a guitar. I still write a song from scratch and I still work on it. And then when I go to the studio, I play it for the artist, just like I would play it for you or your listeners. You know I mean? It's not like as much math as I, and composition there is in writing songs. There's, uh, it still starts from somebody in their room holding a guitar or piano and writing a good song because nothing will beat that. When you stopped working for bands you were in, you mentioned you were in a couple bands before. When it stopped being about the music you were creating and releasing yourself and it became about creating a piece for somebody else, what was the biggest change for you? Was there an aha moment where you felt like things were coming together in a way you hadn't imagined before? Or was that difficult to switch gears and start writing for other people? Um, I, I had written for other people basically from when I was 18 on. I think the idea of um, trying to understand that popular music is a culmination of the best songs in multiple genres. And popular music isn't necessarily, um, isn't less worthy of a musician, you know, it's not like the best musicians are in the professional pop world. They're not necessarily in, just because I went and studied jazz and and classical music in college, that doesn't make you a better musician because you play, you know, essentially if you're in in an orchestra, you're in a a cover band. You know, people go and see Mozart. They don't go see your, your orchestra, you know? So like, to think that that's because you play more notes faster and you play 250-year-old music doesn't mean that it's better music than what the Beatles were doing or, frankly, what's happening on radio right now, you know? So I think I had to understand that what I was creating were really solid songs and that the journey for me was... You know, as as I say a lot, and we talk about in the pot, and and uh, and the writer is is there's a there's a big difference between good music and good song. 
and, you know, Seager Rose, best music in the world. You know, we were listening to Coltrane all weekend uh, in our new house. Like, good music is good music. But um, I, I love composition. Like, I, I, I love the idea of a short, concise, sonata form pop song. Like, I love the idea of, like, the great composition of, like, what is the perfect song? And then how can I replicate that without being redundant? How can I create a lot of songs that are different from one to the next? And the idea that, look, I, I understand where I was in a band, and it's, it was fun, and it's still fun to perform on occasion, but I, I don't know if, you're, if you are happy in front of 10 people or 100 people. I don't think you get happier in front of 1,000 or 10,000. I think you just get happy. You know, like there's only there's only one word in the English, you know, there's a difference between joy and happiness. But for the most part, if you're happy, then like what I don't know how many people I need to perform in front of. But I will say it is really fun that I've heard my songs you know at the Rose Bowl with over 100,000 people singing along to his songs. I've been to arenas where they're sold out, you know, being on tour with an artist where I went, you know, 10 nights in a row to see three of my songs being performed in front of 20 plus thousand people per night. And you're like, well, that's like, it's hard to fathom what that is and to see how much those songs mean to other people. You know, when my friends show videos of their kids playing singing like their first song that they know or they learn are songs that I wrote it's <laughs> such a such a really cool moment you know those those things matter to me and I don't know there's something very satisfying about the fact that there are more people who own a song of mine than there are in California or wow. you know then then there are you know that I have multiple songs that it would be the equivalent of my hometown, you know, my hometown was what, 20,000 people? I mean, you could, you know, or, or all of Chicago is what, 6 million people? I mean, that means that everybody in Chicago owns what, five, six of my songs? I mean, that's all, you can't fathom really like the reach of pop music. I will say that like also, you know, when you're touring, your, your goal is to what, sell out these small rooms? At best, you're selling out what twenty thousand seats if you're if you're a big artist, and if even if you're a cheering and you're selling out, you know, uh, stadiums and you got sixty thousand people, that doesn't even hold a candle to the ten million or two billion streams that Shape of You has. Like a song on radio, still is way faster. Like tours way faster than you can. You cannot drive fast enough to compete with a hit song. You just can't, or a hit album. You can't. You can't compete. That how many people know the Hamilton soundtrack versus who've been able to see Hamilton live? You know, it's like you just can't compete with a with a hit. It it just touches way more people, and I guess I find like a lot of joy in that. It's just a different mindset. Yeah, that definitely uh, sounds like a whole lot of uh, beyond aha moments. I never yeah. looked at it that way. Um, so, you know, speaking of songs being played and streamed and purchased and uh, digested in all these different ways, 
Can we talk about different kinds of royalties? Um, a piece of work can earn when it gets released and where you found the most success in these categories. There's mechanical royalties, there's public performance and broadcast fee royalties, and finally there is our syncs, synchronization royalties from television, film, and commercials. Uh, okay, so there are a lot of ways to make money in the music business. There are some really practical ones. Um, obviously, like, singers get paid. Singers get paid through AFTRA. Uh, instrumentalists get paid. They get paid through AFM. These are unions. Labels, when they release your song, if you sung on it or if you played on it, you get some sort of royalty, Right. Right. Um, I believe it's $227 per side, per recording. So if I sing back up on a song, I get $227.50 times however many times I sang that part on the album. So maybe it's like, or on the song. So maybe it's like eight times or something. So you can do the math. Well, that's, that's okay money. And if I got 20 cuts in the year, then that turns into some real money if I sang on everything. But where that really turns into real money is when that song gets played on a commercial and as a singer or as a guitarist or whatever, you start getting union fees every time it's performed. And you could find that like when you have a song on a Walmart commercial, it's fifty dollars to $100,000 in just extra sort of non-recoupable royalties. So there's some mailbox money that comes just from being a performer. There's uh, something called neighboring rights. Only five countries don't pay neighboring rights. That's the United States, Iran, China, Russia, and North Korea. When we've spoken to what neighboring rights is, is that we're the only country in, uh, in the West that doesn't pay the artist for radio play. So only songwriters get paid for what we call terrestrial radio or FM, AM radio. So what happens is that um, if you have a song played on radio in Europe and you're a singer, you make money. If you get a song played in Canada, you get money. Um, if, you, if, you sing, get, if you sing on a song that you're even, you're not the primary artist, but you're singing background, you still get radio money. 5% of all money that comes in from performed masters, which means radio play and television and whatnot after this sync fee, um, goes to the unions. So if you sang and played guitar on a song that was played internationally, you can make some serious money. You'd be surprised how many tens of thousands of dollars you can make just from having sung or played on a song that works internationally. This is all if you're not even the main artist. If you're the main artist, you're getting paid from all different parts. You're getting paid from the mechanical... You're getting paid some portion of the mechanical exploitation of a master so a cd a record now you get part of streaming you get some percentage most artists get 14 percent, 16 percent. sometimes if they do it on their own you know you can get 30 40 50 percent but most of the artists that you know are getting somewhere around 
you know, 14 to 20% of all the royalty revenue that comes in from the mechanicals and the master side are going to recouping the advance and the cost of promoting a record. So if, if uh, you're a big pop artist and you cost a million dollars to record this album, then you need to create above, with your 20% recoupment, essentially, you need to pay back that million dollars before you ever see anything. So it's, it's pretty complicated, but internationally you get paid for radio play, domestically you don't. As a songwriter, you get paid for terrestrial really well still. So, and radio, um, contrary to popular belief, radio is stronger now than it's ever been. Because it's consolidated and there are fewer companies, there are fewer regional hits. So if you have a real hit at pop radio, it's starting from essentially one core person and it's going to all the radio programmers that are with, you know, KISS, CBS, that kind of thing. So they're going and they're promoting to their 200 stations um, that, that list of top 40 songs. So if you have a top 10 song, really if you have a top 5 song, you make serious money. This is the part that gets a little bit frustrating, which is that if you have a top 40 song, the assumption is you're making a lot of money. But... I can tell you right now that if you have a top 15 song, you're probably, maybe, over the lifetime of the copyright, that whole 100% of the copyright is maybe worth about $100,000, $150,000. So if you're one of four writers, you've now made $25,000 on a top 15 song, which is a song that everybody knows for a short minute, you know? So... Even with like a decent song, no sync, no nothing, that money's gone in no time. You know of songs where the people who are writers on it from five years ago are have never had another cut, basically barely got in the top 20, and that, that money's long gone. So if you have a top 10 song, you then get a certain bonus structure. If you get a top 5 song, 3 song, 1 song, you get certain bonuses along the way. A number one song, you know, will probably range from $800,000 to $10 million, depending on how international the success is. And this is just from the copyright. And that, o over its lifetime. And that, can, that will then be split amongst those writers. The copyright, you'll get paid from streaming, but even though it's, it's continuing to improve, it's not... It's not equal to the master side. Whereas streaming, it's 50-50. If Pizza Hut wants to use your commercial, they'll give you 50000 for the master, 50000 for the, you know, for the publishing side. So the master, again, is the record label. The publishing is the, you know, the publishing side. That ends up being 50-50. And then however it's performed is really very, that is the most, democratic way the music business works is in sync, sync licenses. But uh, when it comes to streaming, it's obviously way heavy valued on the master side, which is something that we've been fighting really hard to try to continue to give songwriters more equity. Um, but there's more money than there's been in 15, 20 years in the business. And there are a lot of people who are successful songwriters who are realizing that 
you need to ask for part of the masters. You need to negotiate for part of the masters. You need to try to sign your own artists. You need to try to find a way to uh, acclimate to the way the new music industry is rather than hoping that it changes and reverts back to an era where when, you know, when most of us remember record stores and most of those albums, you, you know, every song you get this mechanical royalty, the statutory rate of 9.1 cents per song per album divided between the writers. But again, if you sell a million albums, right, that's $91,000 in revenue split between the writers. It's not as much money as people think. So the era where you'd sell 40 million albums or 25 million albums, those Britney Spears albums, you didn't need the hit. You just needed a song on there and you just pulled in $2.5 million, you know? But nowadays, when you're talking about the biggest albums sell, you know, 4 million co copies, you start realizing that, you know, number one albums sell 100,000 in a week. That's, you know, $9,100. You know, the number, and that's split between four ways for the number one album in the country. So that's where the, the fear isn't amongst the hits. The hits radio still plays and pays a lot of money. You know, mechanicals still people are buying, people are still listening. But the part that's like, that's really hard is that there are no, you know, there are no album tracks anymore. So there's just no revenue for that ninth song that isn't a hit. You know, that's where, you, you know, uh, swinging for the fences every time you write, try to aim for that hit because that's what creates the revenue, not that B-side. It's a long, long answer to that's your okay. question. That's okay. That's uh, okay. Well, and the, you know, the second part of the question was, where have you found the most success in these categories? And, I mean, I might answer it for you. Would it be syncs? Have you had some success? Um, well, yeah. I mean, look, I think um, Good to Be Alive for Andy Grammer is my, I believe, my second, maybe third most valuable song. And that's pretty interesting considering that Same Old Love and Dangerous Woman were both really big hits at radio. Um, but the amount of money we made from syncs and from having sung on that song in comparison to, you know, just a song that's a hit, it, it, it can, you can create a lot of revenue. I think My House with Florida is at just such a different level. Than, than the rest of the songs as far as revenue streams because it was able, you know, it's in every cartoon because it's non-offensive, quote, hip-hop. But there's no rap in it except for the bridge. It was like the safest way that, um, you know, Walmart could dabble in that world. You know, it's the safest way that, that all those commercials that use my house, like, it, it gives that um, advertising company like some sort of secure blanket where like, oh, this is edgy pop, even though it's just not. But it, it kind of is because his name's Flo Rida, you know? And that was going to be my next question because I think a lot of our listeners and people in general are really familiar with that that song and Flo Rida. And um, mm. personally, I love the story about how that song came to be. So if you don't mind retelling it again, I'd love for you to talk about how you wrote that song and... Um, the success that followed. 
which you've touched well, this, on already. This is the same thing. It's like it's it, it's a friend of my my friend Yon and I who we write a lot of stuff together. We were supposed to be in the studio. Um, these other producers had already booked out the studio, so we showed up and they they put us in like kind of in the open and like. If you've ever been into a commercial studio, there's always these other rooms that are not the studio. So we had two shitty speakers and the shittiest keyboard they had, and we wanted to uh, we wanted to leave. And it was like, well, we might as well like. The, the strange thing was, I was executive producing another artist who had a really big hit that year, and I I really wasn't having a great time with it. So I decided not to do that. So it was already kind of down. And look, as I always say, I'd rather have a good day than a good song because, you know, you you leave that session, you don't know if it's a hit, but you know if you had fun that day. So, like, I just want to work with people that make me happy. And I always have a good time with Johan. So we just are writing in a room that's not even a real studio. And we were just playing on piano, and I have the whole work tape recorded still of, like, we actually were aiming for Adele, and we had just heard Send My, uh, Send My Love uh, a couple weeks before. And we were like, well, we could write something for Adele. Like, let's just aim for something like that. And so we had this long ballad thing. And, you know, if you sing it slowly, it's actually really pretty. You know, like, you knock on the door and the night begins. And it's like this, like, sweet, like, you know kind of a sweeter lyric it wasn't until then we're like oh you know right at the end of the work tape he's like oh i hope you recorded that and we went and we we started playing with it and then it's like oh if you speed it up well that actually has like maybe this is more of like a pop record and then it was like he just took my voice and he just used uh, essentially using uh, a plug-in that that when you lower it a third i just sounded identical to flow rider and and that's still a lot of the voice that you hear in the final recording is still from that day of me just like doing all those background vocals. Um, I just sound identical to Flo Rida. So now we've done five songs with Flo and we're really close to, with him. And he came in and he wrote the bridge and he killed the bridge on it. But it's literally my voice in the chorus with his, but you if you know me, you know, like, the tone and, like, certain, like, vowels and things that, like, I can't, you know, I'm still a 5'10 Jewish guy, even if I sound a little bit blacker when you lower the tone. But but somehow, like, that's just how that song worked. And they didn't make it the single. They didn't make it the second single. And it just happened that Rush Week started, started where every fraternity and sorority started using Welcome to My House as, like, the song that they use during Rush Week. And so you'd see these blips on iTunes. And sure enough, it was like number one on iTunes for, you know, something like three months. And it had nothing to do with the with anything other than fraternities and sororities on, on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, downloading it off iTunes and streaming it off of Spotify. And there you go. And like it's it's one of those rare stories where I've had labels push songs that were singles and they flopped for one reason or another. And this one, I don't know if they really wanted to push, and uh, it ended up happening anyway. 
I mean, the video is like really like secondary. All of it was secondary because no one knew it was going to be that big. And, um, you know, I just remember hearing it a year before it was like really a hit. At, um, they were playing it at a couple of arenas during like, like the, it was released in March and we would hear it during all the playoffs and people started playing it. And I remember hearing it live and be like, yeah, this is incredible. And like, you're hearing like, that's me. <laughs> like I'm singing this thing, like I'm showing my friends and being, and then I was at the big house in Ann Arbor and there's a hundred thousand people. And I turned around and I'm wasted and I'm like, I'm with my wife and my in-laws and I'm like, this is, this is me. <laughs> and like, everyone's like, it was like, they don't get it because I'm in the Midwest and I'm the only like, I'm like a random white guy who's claiming to write this song. And then, you know, six months later, it's the biggest song in the country. And it's just insane. I did not know the fraternity sorority angle there. That's awesome. I had no idea. That's that's the thing is you, you can't, you don't want to write for a sync, but, you know, it makes sense. Like, you can use, pop songs are really not, you, you can't really license pop songs. You know, because they're, they also tend to be expendable. They tend to be disposable. They, they come and go very quickly. So the only way you license a pop song is if the people who are licensing the song request it. So that's why a lot of times when you have, you have hit songs like Same Old Love, which was number one for three weeks, I think, at radio. I don't think it got one like big license. It's not really that kind of song. It just was like a big hit, if that makes sense. But it wasn't a, you know. It wasn't a, it just wasn't, it wasn't the license that, that licensable kind of material that something like Good To Be Alive, which I, I know a lot of people probably don't even know on this, but if they heard it, maybe they'd recognize it. it was, you know, I think it got to number 10 at, at Hot AC and, you know, the amount of mailbox money that I've gotten from that and from my house is, is pretty insane. And mostly because of those, those sinks and more so than international play or anything like that. That's amazing. So yeah. I, I think this is um, an important question, and I'm curious uh, to get your answer. But um, how important are relationships and networking, in your opinion, to a successful career in songwriting? Uh, I mean, I always tell people it's not, it's not really who you know. It's more who knows you. So it, 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 it doesn't really matter. I mean, a lot of people can say, like, oh, I met this person or I know this person. But unless they can say, oh, no, I know this, I know you, those relationships don't totally mean all that much, you know? Because, um, like, that's, that's just what it is. I, I always think that L.A. is about mutual exploitation versus New York. You know, that mentality was always... I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to be the best. And I think that's the wrong generation. I think this generation is much more about community and helping each other out. And you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Um, so, yeah, I think relationships have a lot to do with it. But, you know, I, the people I know who were born into it, I can think of two, maybe, that have been successful but in reality, like if they aren't writing good songs, no one cares about your relationships or who your dad was or who your mom was. Like that, it just doesn't make a real difference. It might help open some doors, but most of the people I know in this were from a small town and figured it out. You know, they just figured it out. They figured out how to make friends. They figured out how to be in the right place. They didn't know everybody. It wasn't like some sort of gift that they met everybody. They earned it through talent, through perseverance. 
Okay. I, guess, I guess my question was more about, you know, fostering those relationships once you come into the community rather than what you're coming into it with. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I spend obviously a lot of time on that. I'm, I'm constantly fighting for songwriters because this is my community. I mean, these people really help me in my darkest time. And I feel like I've been able to help a lot of other writers because of it. And so I, I think that tends to be, again, this generation versus the previous one, which I think the previous one, maybe even the one before that, where um, they were so cliquish and it's really hard to be cliquish in the music industry today because people talk too much. If you're a jerk in the music business, you'll be out before you get a, a, a chance to even hang. Even though there's so many great ones right now where you're wondering what happened to them and it's probably because they're jerks and no one wants to work with them. Fair because enough. the ones the ones that are really nice, everyone's like still rooting for them. And my last question: You sit in writer rooms with all different kinds of folks every day. Your podcast mm -hmm. and the writer is highlights how songwriters break out of those writer rooms and into the top forty. What is one of the most surprising success stories in regard to mailbox money you can share with us today? I think what what, what ends up happening is like it's 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 the surprise hits. You know, it's the fact that. It's still a lot of opinions, you know, people don't, I, you know, what you, you play for a record label and you can play for one guy at a record label and he's like, it's a pass. And you play for another guy at a record label, he's like, it's a hit, you know? So I don't know if there's like, I mean, almost everybody's has a hit that wasn't supposed to be. And the amount of time, you know, an artist passed on a hit or... You know, four artists cut it before it ended up sticking with a certain artist, you know. And the I, what, one of the things that's kind of exciting is, like, I have an iTunes filled with thousands of songs that have not been cut. Somewhere in there is are at least one, you know, statistically, there's got to be at least one song in there that's a hit, you know. And, and I don't know which one it is, but I kind of like the idea that I can be in a meeting and I can send some song or play some song that's seven years old. There's, I had the last Nelly single that um, didn't go to radio, but it was a, a, a Pizza Hut commercial or something like that. The song was seven years old. You know, I mean, like I played the song for a lot of people and nobody wanted it. But, you know, my wife was like, hey, that kind of sounds like Nelly. I was like, really? And then I got hit up like a month later, like, do you have any songs for Nelly? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, maybe. And I played it and they were like, this is great. You know, and then sure enough, I'm, you know, smoking a joint with Nelly in a studio being like, how is this my life? But, you know, this goes back to that same thing of the material I was writing when I was in a foreclosing condo is now the album I'm releasing on Interscope. And how people listen to music changes as your reputation, reputation changes. People listen with different ears. They want to like it more. They want to root for you. You know, and I think that's what's really fascinating. It's like the listener's perspective has more to do with the value of your copyright than your perspective. You know, if you play a song for someone who's in a good mood, then they might like the song more. I think it's probably smarter to send... If I remembered this, this would be good. These are two good rules. One is you should send the songs after lunch, after someone just ate. You send it at 11.30 and they're kind of hungry, they're gonna, they might be a little ornery. They might be like, I don't want to hear this right now. 
send it at two and it's the first song they hear after lunch and they might be like, oh, kind of like this song. You know, I've just eaten. I'm kind of relaxed. I'm listening with positive ears. There's also like these, this sounds stupid, but this is, this it's real. And it's like, if I send you three songs and I, I still fall for this, I still make this mistake. But if I send you three songs, you're going to have, you're going to be like, this one's my favorite. And that second and third song might also be hits. You're not comparing that second and third song with the next guy's, you know, batch of songs. So a lot of A&R guys miss the hit on the second or third song that they pass. Because when you send that three songs, they're going to be like, yo, I'm going to pick my my favorite. If you send 20 songs, they're still only going to pick one. They're going to be like, this is my favorite of the 20. They're not going to say, I want this one, this one, this one, and this one. Some might do that. But for the most part, people still will they'll listen through the 20, they'll flip through, and they'll be like, this one was my favorite. And you're sitting there with, with, you know, 19 songs that the guy just passed on. But if you were to send that same email in seven increments, you know, let's go 21 songs, and you send in seven increments, they might pick seven of their favorites. But if you send them in, in, in batches, people always pick their favorite. So it's like limit how excited you are about the quantity of music you have. Excellent advice. Thank you so much for being here with us, Ross. Is there anything besides, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about And the Writer Is and anything else you want to share before we say goodbye? Uh, well, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, when we get off this, I'm going to be listening to basically the, uh, the Wrong Man, the album, which is the thing I've been working on for basically since 2003. And I've uh, been working on an album with Ricky Reed, which is exciting. Uh, and, you know, we're putting that, trying to make that a stage show in New York and for 2019, which is exciting. Um, and the writer is, is about to have its third season. We just have finished pretty much the last interview. Then we edit and we figure out timing and all that stuff. But, uh, we're at about a million downloads and we have, you know, we've interviewed the best songwriters in the music business. So, you know, it's, it's less of an interview as much as it is a conversation amongst, you know, sort of peers talking about how this stuff really works. My advice to people, a lot of people will ask, like, what advice I can give them. And I don't know how I would give any other advice than go listen to And The Writer Is because everyone tells their journey and your journey will be different than our journey. And write quality music and listen up because uh, that's like a free resource for you to learn from the best. Yeah, it is an excellent podcast. I can vouch for that. Well, thank you so much, Ross Golan, for being here with us today on Music Made Me. If you want to learn more about earning money from your music, go to TuneCore.com and check out our artist services page. Please don't forget to subscribe to Music Made Me, rate us on iTunes, and follow us on social media at TuneCore.